from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm curious, what's the uh, smartest device you have in your home? My home? Uh, so I don't, I don't technically have a home right now. Um, I'm <laughs> kind of in, in motion. Uh, my lease was up last year, and I was like, what if I try living in a few different places first before I lock myself down, uh, you know, kind of prioritizing flexibility yeah, you look like you're in a utility supply closet right now. I, I yeah, I'm in a friend's uh, pantry slash uh, washer dryer closet in Southern California currently. Um, so yeah, smartest device in my home. I, I guess that's just my brain. Like I carry that wherever <laughs> I go. <laughs> Julian Spector is a senior reporter for Canary Media, and in between recent trips across South America and Mexico with a stop at a friend's utility closet in between, he's been reporting on this perennial question. What exactly is the energy smart home of the future? This is one of the most interesting and, quite frankly, annoying topics in energy, if you ask me. I say it's annoying because we have this pop culture influence view of the smart home where everything is completely automated and our dwellings anticipate every need. And we've all internalized this, whether we believe it's going to happen or not. It's just kind of how the smart home is judged. But I still find the question endlessly interesting because our homes are getting smarter. So many devices from thermostats to Wi-Fi routers to lights to refrigerators to batteries are potentially interactive. And it's totally possible to orchestrate them for the benefit of the electricity system. That's not science fiction. It will be more valuable, really, for all parties involved to have homes that are very much connected to the grid, are able to respond to signals from the grid based on things like an imminent shortage of power. Is there a ton of cheap or free solar being pumped onto the wires at this moment and you could get extra power, you know, and help out and use more clean energy, you know, instead of all these homes being their own little island, they're all together in some sense as part of this broader grid network working together in ways that help the residents in the home, but also lower the overall costs of the clean energy transition and make the whole system more efficient, clean and stable. Now, this vision that you just outlined has been out there for the last couple of decades. People have been talking about these grid interactive homes uh, since the early 2000s. How does reality stack up to this imagined future? It's not quite so shiny as you might expect. At this point, we are seeing year over year, you know, growth in the number of connected smart devices in homes. So that is trending in a direction of smarter, more connected homes. Surveys of consumers also say that energy efficiency, sustainability are really top priorities for the people who are buying these devices. So as far as the grid-connected, grid-interactive, clean energy home vision, uh, we're extremely early. We're extremely early. There's there, there are some really meaningful achievements in select pockets of the country and the world, uh, but it's very, very far from any kind of mass participation in the energy system. I think this topic in particular can get sort of ungrounded and, and abstract, um, but I did find actually uh, quite a few companies that are, are already implementing this vision in thousands, tens of thousands, and in some cases, hundreds of thousands of homes. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a new backdrop for the smart home. 
As we electrify the economy and build more variable renewables, we need buildings to help balance the grid. And after decades of futuristic visions that never materialized, are we finally at a moment when the smart grid interactive home is emerging in a meaningful form? Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. I have seen many variations of the smart home vision over the years. In the mid-2000s, the internet-enabled consumer dashboard was going to be the thing that revolutionized energy in the home. If people could just see in real time how energy is being used, they would transform their behavior. So the thinking went. Even Google and Microsoft got in on the action and then shut down their energy dashboards when no one was using them. Then came the smart thermostat pioneered by Nest. Now that device, and then a range of other smart thermostats, they're genuinely good products. Google Nest has sold 11 million of them. People really like them. Many hoped that the rise of smart thermostats marked the start of a wave of technology adoption that would enable millions of energy-aware homes. They have been really helpful for demand response programs, no doubt, and shaving off some money from energy bills here and there. But the gadget-centric model just hasn't unlocked a smart home revolution. One of the problems is consumer expectations. People don't want to do that much work or buy a bunch of gadgets or look at a dashboard every day just to save a few bucks a month on their energy bills for the sake of it. Another is regulation. I mean, here in America, it's so hard to make homes into grid assets because of a thicket of different utility programs and regional market rules. But today there's a new backdrop that's creating more urgency for the grid interactive home. And that led Julian to ask how it might influence a new phase of activity. Yeah, so one big thing that's changed is this new momentum around electrify everything after years where a lot of the clean energy focus was just getting more renewables built. Uh, there's now real policy and interest in electrifying homes, electrifying buildings, swapping out the, the fossil fuel appliances for, for electric ones. But it doesn't solve the problem entirely because you know we're trying to clean up everything. And if we just electrify the homes and leave them you know, non-responsive to the grid, suddenly you have much bigger electrical demand that has to be met by clean energy. But if it's not lining up with when the clean energy is being produced, you got a problem there. And to, to illustrate that point, you can imagine California feasible that in the next few decades, almost all the homes will, will be cooking without gas, you know, switching to induction stoves and, and heating and cooling electrically. But, you know, let's say we got a ton of solar power during the day, 
And then at night, everyone's coming home. The solar power stops producing because the sun goes down. And then everyone's turning on their, their induction stove to cook dinner. And suddenly you have this spike of demand that just didn't used to exist at the exact time that was already really our most challenging time for, for meeting electricity needs in, in California. And so I, I think there's this real risk that if we only electrify and don't do it in a smart and flexible way, that creates a, a much bigger headache for trying to like build enough clean energy and deliver it to people at those times than if we just do some common sense approaches around, you know, making the making the buildings a, a useful uh, player in this whole system. Yeah, the electrification piece is really interesting because NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, put out an electrification futures study and found that with widespread electrification across the economy, we're going to have to double the amount of electricity generating capacity that we're installing, renewable electricity generating capacity through the middle of the century. So it's a lot more capacity and there's a lot more flexibility you need in the system when you're developing that much renewable energy. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the the, the other facet here is the grid has to be built to to meet the moment of highest demand in the year. But, you know, if that's only one hour and there's a one hour where everyone's using all their things because there's no coordination to help sort of smooth out the demand, you could end up being forced to, to buy all these really expensive like grid transmission upgrades, distribution upgrades, things like that, um, that could be avoided if there's just a, a little more coordination uh, you know, to to kind of smooth out the things that don't have to be happening all at the same time. What's interesting, though, is that this isn't necessarily a technology problem. Like, we have the ability to communicate with devices. Devices are getting better in the home. Consumers are adopting those devices. So what does the technology landscape itself look like here? Because there's a lot of interesting stuff that has happened that could potentially enable this grid interactivity. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so the, there's plenty of technologies that can do this and are doing this. When, when I spoke with El Ticolo, who's a, a longtime analyst of the, the future of the grid space and investor uh, as a vice president at, at Huck Capital, she said, I don't think we should be calling this the home of the future. It's the home of the present because the technology, it's already here. And yeah, I mean, there's solar charged batteries in homes that can feed into the grid if you need to you know, actually send power back to the broader system, um, you've got smart thermostats, which are probably the you know single most widespread consumer product of the energy suite here. And then there's you know things you can do with heating and cooling, uh, such as preheating your your water in an insulated water heater, so you don't need to use energy you know during the peak demand times or the higher price times. So you know the, the, these things are doable they're already being done and and I think that's broadly true of the clean energy transition like we we know how to make clean power and and shift it around but it's how do you find ways to do that in rules and regulations that were written for an earlier era that you know don't necessarily recognize that all these technologies are here and able to do these valuable tasks yeah so if technology is not really the problem then what are the limiting factors they seem to be consumers and how they view the space and their role in it, and then regulation. Absolutely. So I think a critique that you can make of the clean energy industry uh, writ large, this is generalizing a little bit, but there's a lot of companies that are very good at tackling these thorny, wonky, really complicated grid 
problems, engineering problems, design challenges, and coming up with these really complex but interesting solutions that some would call fascinating, perhaps. But um, that's often happening at a at an extreme distance from any sort of consumer friendly conversation or or understanding. And, you know, a a lot of these startups have to really sell to utilities as the way to get into the market. And it's just a different mindset or skill set if you're trying to sell to these uh, subject matter experts, a relatively small group of them, and that's who decides if if your product gets bought or not. Uh, It's very different from mass marketing products that uh, an individual person, a normal kind of someone not obsessed with the grid uh, might actually be interested in. But then, like you said, the the regulation and the incentive structures, that's a huge one here because if you don't have a way to compensate people for for helping the grid, it's like, why why should you do it? I mean, you could ask people to do it out of the kindness of their hearts. And in fact, that's something California has done <laughs> repeatedly with its flex alerts when it's a summer heat wave and the, there's not enough power to go around and they just basically plead with people and say, please, use less electricity, please. But that's via text message and social media. Via text message. Yeah. This is not a, an asset that can be controlled. It's like it's on social media and a text message. You don't you don't want your whole economy depending on begging people to turn off the lights at a, at a crucial time, right? You want to you have a system in place where you're reacting before you get to the emergency, you give people a reason to do the kind of behavior that is desirable. And yeah, so we're, we're starting to see pockets of this where uh, maybe it's a, a local kind of pilot project in a single utility territory, or um, if you're in one of the more competitive markets like uh, Texas, or increasingly in California, there are these sort of more open space for for companies to to structure kind of more dynamic uh, business models that are able to actually participate in the broader system and reward people. Um, but across the board, yeah, the the regulatory factors are are very tricky. We're going to pause the show here for just a moment, and when we return, we'll look at a few companies that are actually making progress in pockets of the country. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon, and Emily every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. (laughs) 
So let's uh, hear about what companies are actually doing that is interesting and making a real impact. There's a lot of experimentation with business models. It's pretty incremental at this stage, but certainly some promising activity that you went out and highlighted. So tell me about some of the companies you looked at and what they're doing that feels genuinely impactful. So yeah, I'll I'll run you through a few of them. Uh, You know, one is Octopus Energy. Have you heard of them? Yeah, I have. They're a UK retailer? Yeah, so it started as a a UK retailer, and they've kind of kept growing and growing, and now they have got their uh, tentacles in a lot of things, so to speak. So in the fall, when it looked like the UK was facing potentially a a fuel shortage as a result of the war in Ukraine and and gas prices and everything, Octopus Energy just kind of flipped on a, a demand flexibility service overnight for for their customers. They just said, hey, customers, you could help us avoid grid shortages and we'll compensate you. And they got like 400,000 people to sign up almost overnight. And uh, in the first event that they responded to with this kind of decentralized uh, grid response fleet, they um, lowered demand by 108 megawatts, (laughs) which is like a serious amount of power. That's like a could be a you know peaker plant not needing to fire up. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Now in the U.S., they operate in Texas, where there's also this really decentralized, rough-and-tumble competitive market uh, around electricity. And so they found that over there, they can come in and be a retailer. And what they do is they, uh, they lower the electricity rates people pay if the customers sign up more connected devices Octopus can, you know, operate on their behalf. Um, so, for instance, if you're a customer of their electricity and you get an EV and you say, hey, you can control my smart EV charger within certain parameters, uh, schedule when it charges up, uh, they chop your rate per kilowatt hour electricity by 20%. That's a substantial amount, you know? And aren't they wrapping EV leases into those contracts? Yeah, yeah. So they're, they can also hook you up with the with the EV in the first place and uh, do the the lease payment on the same energy bill because it's all part of the same package to them. And uh, they're not just like giving away money here. What they're able to do is use that flexibility to source the power they have to provide to that customer at times when there's more renewables and it's it's cheaper on the in the wholesale market. Um, and so it's it's really a win-win. Like they they compete with other retailers by offering cheaper rates and they're able to offer the cheaper rates by enlisting the customer devices. And then it's all kind of building towards this, this macro vision of a, a cleaner grid, a more efficient grid, and a, you know, a more kind of decentralized and resilient grid. Who else jumped out to you? Do you remember Sonin from the, the, the old battery battery storage? Yeah, German battery provider, yeah. Yeah, so... You know, when I started covering them for for Green Tech Media, when we worked together now years ago, you know, they were this company. They were big in Germany. In the U.S., they they just were a lot more expensive than the Powerwall was in the early days, and you, you kind of wondered like, oh, how long is this going to last? Because it's hard to just be a more expensive alternative. But w- you know, what they have in Germany is this massive decentralized kind of utility, almost where they. They have batteries in people's homes and they coordinate them and operate them in the wholesale markets in a way that they can basically provide really affordable electricity service to the customers because they're kind of, 
using the customer's batteries to to bid into these markets in really complicated ways. And, you know, they just can't do that in the U.S. because of the different regulations in every state and, you know, this, this emphasis on the traditional utility model. But they've found ways to, like, make little versions of that wherever possible. And so one of the most interesting is actually in Utah. Tough market for rooftop solar. Uh, they, they got rid of the net metering policy that, you know, pays you for the extra electricity you send to the grid. So there's very low compensation for solar. Also, power is very cheap. But what uh, Sonnen was able to do is kind of convince the utility Rocky Mountain Power that uh, it would be really useful to have thousands of home batteries able to respond in milliseconds to whatever grid need you might have. And so there's this now thriving network of like, like literally thousands of, of homes participating and they, they get a big check up front from the utility, like a couple thousand dollars. And then the, the utility is able to call in these batteries for, usually it's um, like the frequency regulation, which is just little bursts, little bursts of power that kind of get the grid back in, in line where it needs to be. And uh, it's kind of a wild success story because there's none of the usual policy supports. And um, I talked to some of the solar sales folks who are working with Sonin on this uh, company, ES Solar, and you know they were saying their customers are actually pretty excited to be like helping the broader community. Um, yeah, so Sonin, uh, it was actually 88% of the batteries they've installed in the U.S., are part of some sort of uh, virtual power plant or grid grid interactive program, which is just a wild statistic compared to the the norm for the market, where you know most people are buying the batteries for really the backup power, and and it just kind of sits there. One of the other companies that you talked to was Ohm Connect, which is an interesting company because you know so far we've been talking about more expensive devices that people need to be able to interact with the grid but ohm connect isn't doesn't necessarily require that so what's their business model yeah so they work with all sorts of devices um so you don't need a a, a fancy battery at its most basic they'll just text you hey if you could reduce your usage uh you know for the next 15 minutes or half an hour we'll reward you for it and then you know if you want to get more involved, you can get these smart plugs where you know you just plug a major appliance into that, and they're able to remotely kind of flip it on and off in response to to the needs of the grid. So they've they've gotten a lot of scale through this. They've got three hundred thousand grid interactive homes worldwide um, that they're managing, and in California, which is their their, their main base of operations, uh, they've got two hundred fifty thousand appliances and devices under their control. So I think what's cool about their model is uh, the, the CEO, Cisco DeVries, he's uh, all about the incremental wins. Um, he, he told me, you know, you've got to start somewhere that's relatively easy and makes sense for people and you can build from there. He said they've noticed when people sign up, they'll compare the like key summer months um, energy consumption to the year before the customer signed up. And they reduce uh, energy use by 10.2% on average. But he admitted that's actually a lot more than anything we're doing as a company to, to, to change their, their energy usage. So there's almost a psychological effect beyond the, um, the technology itself. 
So all visions of the future in this area, I wouldn't say all, but many visions of the future in this area have a Jetsons-like feel. And this is a much more (laughs) tempered view of how the smart home will play out. So we're at the very early stage of this transition, even though it's been ongoing for some time. What do you think the evolution of the smart home looks like? What do these companies think? And do you feel like the industry is being more reasonable about setting expectations? I think so. I, I think um, you don't need to overhaul the home entirely. You can you can take devices people actually have already and and make some use out of them for the grid. Uh, it, it's a it's a more modest goal and I think more realistic than swapping out the entirety of the built environment for for something clean and shiny and new. So the key going forward is just finding finding the places where you can kind of graft this new vision onto the existing energy system. And um, I would guess we we do see more grid interactive homes in absolute terms, but that it'll be very unevenly distributed. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we're already seeing some very exciting programs in Texas where the, the structure of the market allows creative businesses to come in and just whip something up and do it. You know, you're seeing that in the UK. We're finally seeing more of it in California, which is like talked about it for years and years without really making the structures needed to to make this a, a repeatable kind of thing. But it's finally starting to happen there. And then you can see the cases where there is a traditional utility that is just thinking a little more creatively than some of them and and jumps on board with this. So that's that means there's millions of people living in places where they just might not have lucked into having a, a sufficiently creative utility to give them access to this sort of thing. But I, that's kind of the structure of our energy system, and solving that uh, <laughs> requires a, a higher order level of organization and, and mobilization. It doesn't look like you have a grid interactive thermostat behind you in that supply closet. Yeah, I don't know. There's a bunch of bottles of rum and some power drills. Uh, yeah. It looks like there's a, an electric vacuum there hanging on the wall. Maybe the utility can cycle that on and off as it's charging. Yeah, you know, if there's a good battery in it, maybe we can we can start activating the Dyson uh, vacuum fleet. <laughs> Julian Spector, a senior reporter at Canary Media, thanks so much. Oh, this was very fun to talk through. And, uh, you know, let's come back in a decade and see uh, see if it's really happening. And that is all for the show. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can sign up for our respective newsletters. Go to canarymedia.com and get all their coverage. Go to postscriptmedia.com and get our transcripts and a roundup of all the shows we're putting out each week. This episode was produced by me and Alexandria Herr. Sean Marquand is our engineer. He also composed our theme song. And original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a wide range of sectors. That's advanced energy, food and ag, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And uh, you can support this show by just giving us a rating and review. Hook up a link to a friend or a colleague. Give us a shout out on social media. You know, word of mouth is still so important for growing these shows. So any help you can provide is greatly appreciated. And we, of course, greatly appreciate you 
tuning into the show each week, and we will catch you next week. I am Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy.